If Pharaoh thought in rejecting the request of Moses that it was all over, then he was badly mistaken. The battle was only about to begin. For God had promised Moses that signs and wonders would follow. The Pharaoh was no longer to be confronted with mere words. He was now going to have to deal with the actions of God. And these verses commence the portion that is often referred to as the plagues of Egypt. The signs that Moses had demonstrated previously, remember, they were before the people. So up until this moment in time, no miracle, no uh, demonstration of God's power had been performed before Pharaoh. But that was going to change immediately. I should say to you also, you see the word signs in verse 3. It is used in other places in the scriptures. If I take you back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14, for example, we have it there. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. So the word signs there in, in relation to the stars, the moon, the sun and all of that, uh, it was, in a sense, it was used as signs for seasons. And you know, of course, that uh, those in boats and ships years ago would have gone by the stars, etc. They were signs for, sign, for seasons. The same word is used with regard to the rainbow after the flood. And there it is translated as a token of the covenant. The word is also used when it concerns the mark that God placed upon Cain. It is also used to do with circumcision and with the Sabbath day. And so if men and women, you bring all those things together, we note that the signs or the plagues were divine indicators. They were divine pointers given by God. Pharaoh was about to witness at first hand God's power. The battle lines were drawn. What was unfolding was the forces of the devil backing, of course, the gods of Egypt and their leader against the almighty power of the Lord God, the only true and living God of heaven and earth. That battle would ensue in the unfolding chapters. The end result, of course, we know the people would go free, the false gods of Egypt would be counted as nothing, and it would be seen that Jehovah was proven to be the only true God. But we're right at the start of that battle. What we're going to see is no longer the weakness of Moses. No more been timid, hesitant, or discouraged. But every scene displays the power of God. The gauntlet is now thrown down, and now there's a battle between God and Pharaoh. There's a battle between good and evil. And men and women, that's a battle that is rendered and repeated every day in this world, every day in your life and mine, whether we recognize it or not. The battle between good and evil. I want you to notice, firstly, the representatives. It's obvious, it's to state the obvious, that the one whom God had called to deal with Pharaoh, to stand before him, and to lead the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt, was indeed Moses. God had, remember, spared Moses. When the baby boys were killed, Moses was spared. Moses was raised 
in due time for such a time as this. And that is emphasized not only by the means of the genealogy that we looked last time in the chapter 6, but also by the opening words in chapter 7 that God speaks unto him. I want you to consider he's a man that is God's ambassador. The Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a God to Pharaoh. As an ambassador of God, he was one who had the authority of heaven behind him. God had chosen him to be his ambassador before the king of Egypt. He had invested him with divine authority. He was about to use him to bring about those signs and those wonders that he spoke about, those things that were contrary to the ordinary course of nature. But in those few words, I have made thee a God to Pharaoh, we see that God does not rank Men as the world does. Let me explain that. You see, to the human eye, the greatest man or rank in Egypt was the Pharaoh. And please consider that Egypt in those days was, was a, 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 a mass of power. We talk about, uh, you know, the major powers in the world today, of China or America or some of these other ones. Well, Egypt was in that same bracket in those days. It was the mass of power. And that only but added to the position that Pharaoh held in the eyes of men. But with God, the order is somewhat different. The lowest in God's ranking was Pharaoh. And the highest was his man. Who had for the past 40 years been a mere shepherd in an obscure part of the land of Midian. Moses, as God's ambassador, was to rule over Egypt's proud leader, commanding him what he should do, correcting him when he did wrong, and punishing him for his disobedience. For don't forget the day was to come when Pharaoh had to apply to Moses for the removal of the plagues. He wanted them away, out of the land. You know, it's a blessed thing if we keep in mind that God's estimation of rank is different from what the world might think. The highest ranking people in this world are you and me who are his people. You never thought of that, did you? But you see, we are known as sons and daughters of the king. We're joint heirs with Christ. One day we shall reign with him. And Paul has to remind the church in Corinth of that. They were taking each other to the law courts. He says, have you forgotten, I'm paraphrasing of course, have, I, have you forgotten that you will judge one day, that you will reign one day? Old Willie Mullen, I'm sure many of you the older generation anyway would have heard of Willie Mullen, evangelist in this country years ago. He used to say, if people realized who you were, they would take off their hat when they approached you in the street. You're a, you're a child of God this morning. You are a son or a daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You will reign with Christ. And men and women as such, we should live as such. There's the, there's the bet. We should live as such, as sons and daughters of the King. The world's value on things is totally different, of course. It doesn't value the learning of the Word of God. In fact, how many seem, even in church circles, to ape the world system today? There's no emphasis on learning the Word of God. 
And boys and girls, can I just say, and young people, you, you might think sometimes as you go home from your, with your lessons and there's a catechism and it's not just a wee short one, it's a brave size. You might not enjoy learning that. But this church believes in catechizing our children. Because when you're catechized, when you learn those things, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You are really having a little summary of all the truths that are found in God's Word. That's how important it is. That's why, as a Sunday school, we don't bring the children in to play games with them in the Sunday school. That's why, as a Bible class, we don't have a cup of coffee and talk about the things of last week. And that's what's going on in many of the churches. Those catechisms, those scriptures that your Sunday school teacher uh, encourages you to learn, they will stand by you. And you'll be able to quote them maybe in years to come. I could maybe go to some of the adults and you could still quote some of the catechisms or some of the scriptures that you've learned because the Word of God is hidden in your heart. We value the, the Word of God. The world doesn't value it. It puts emphasis on philosophies and theories of evil and wicked men instead. Moses was God's ambassador. And as such, he had also Aaron there at his, as his mouthpiece. He, he would be like a prophet unto him. And you know, of course, what an ambassador does, what their role is, it is to speak what the king or what the government or authority has commanded them. It is to represent their master. And so it was for Moses. You look at verse 2. Thou shalt speak all that I command thee. And Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Aaron that he send the children of Israel out of his land. The message that Moses was to convey as the Lord's ambassador was not something of his own making. The message even wasn't just a part. But God says, all that I command thee, thou shalt speak unto Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron were to declare God's word. And the message, that was the message that was needed. And men and women, the same charge is laid upon the servants of God today. It is to preach in season and out of season. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. And you know, Paul was very conscious of that. I can take you back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, I actually made reference to this in the Bible class this morning. He meets with the elders of Ephesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem to preach there uh, at the time of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. But he has a message for the elders. That's why he gets them to meet at Miletus on the coast. Uh, and he rehearses of, uh, of the time that he's been among them. And verse 27 is where I take you. Because he says to these men... Verse 26, Wherefore I take you to record this day, I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. The Apostle Paul was conscious that he had to preach all the counsel of God. He had to preach the message that was needed. He didn't leave wee bits out or big bits out. He preached all the counsel of God. There seems very few these days who are prepared to do that. You see, many people are taken up with being entertained. The modern day signs and wonders. And people want to have their ears tickled and to be sent away good. And so therefore, the result is, not all the counsel, not all the message that God would have us speak is spoken. 
And so there's many a man and many a pulpit today in Ulster, and they'll not dare preach against sin. Or any of those other things that, that, that they might think is controversial. But it's all the counsel of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. Moses was God's ambassador with God's authority to speak what God commanded him. And I labor that point because don't forget the child of God is the same. You see, 2 Corinthians 5, and there's a description there, verse 20, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. You and I are an ambassador of Christ. We're commanded to speak what the Lord, Lord's message is. We're to live like an ambassador of Christ. And of course, we're bringing the message to the unconverted, how they can be reconciled to a holy God. Let me also show you here that we have the action of God in verse 3. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. It reveals one of the solemnest truths in God's word. That is the divine hardening of a human heart. God said he would harden the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't harden his own heart. And while we cannot fully explain it, just in the same token, it is God who is able to soften a heart, yet our business, men and women, is to preach it, not to tone it down, not to try and explain it away so as to make it more acceptable to the human nature. It says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And you know, it's not the only example in the Scriptures of this. Let me just give you a couple more. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30. It says there, But Zion, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. This is the time Moses rehearsing their wilderness wanderings. They came to this portion of land, and the king wouldn't let them pass by. Why? For the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into thy hand as appeareth this day. God hardened his heart. He wouldn't uh, give way to the children of Israel. And the purpose is there that he might deliver him into our hand. That's the case also with the cities that battled against Israel. Joshua chapter 11, to give you another one, verse 19 and 20. It says, There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, save the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all other they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly, and that they might have no favor, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. God hardened their hearts against them. Those scriptures I've given to you are simply an illustrations or illustrations that bring out what Paul teaches in Romans 9.18. He says, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Whom he will he hardeneth. And can I say to thee are unsaved? That's why you ought not. To despise the day of God's grace to your soul. 
That's why you not, should not put it off to another day. If God's Spirit is striving with you, remember that little text, my spirit shall not always strive with men. It's not to be put off. It's not to be ignored. Because God can harden the heart. And shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And he hardened Pharaoh's heart. The reason why his heart will be hardened is given even in the next two verses. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that I may lay my hand upon Egypt. There's a first one. And bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. It was so that God would have opportunity to display his mighty power. And the power of God will be seen in the deliverance of his people. Egypt had oppressed them for years. God had spoken his word. They wouldn't give heed to it. Now the judgments of God will be multiplied to cause Egypt to let Israel go. Is there not a solemn reminder to us all? It's better to obey God's word than to put a stubborn resistance against it. Only for us then to incur the chastening of the Lord. Better to obey the Lord's word. The other reason was all Egypt would know than the power of Jehovah. They would no longer be in ignorance. The Egyptians would know the true God by seeing his stretched out arm come against them. How fearful to think that even the ungodly, while they reject God and they don't want to know about God, yet they will eventually learn about God, but not in the manner which will rejoice their hearts, but rather through the hard way. Before the judgment seat of God, they will learn. The ungodly will learn many truths, but it will be to their eternal sorrow. It'll be too late. It's better to obey God's word when he speaks in mercy, not in judgment. There's just a wee note I want to say before I go on, and that is about the age of these representatives. We've been looking at the representatives. Look at verse 7. And Moses was fourscore years old. And Aaron fourscore and ye, three years old when they spake on the first. And we know Aaron, brother, his brother was three years older. Fourscore is a twenty. Multiply it up. God was pleased to use, to use aged men as his representative or as his instruments. Yes, in those days, we have to say they lived longer so that 80 years of age would seem uh, not as old as it does today. Of course, you're in school. You know, you come home and you say, well, my teacher's an old woman. She might be late 30s or early 40s and you think she's ancient. But it's when you get beyond that, you don't really consider that to be so. But nevertheless, I want you to think of this. It's only at 80 that Moses does his greatest work. He stands before Pharaoh. At 80 years of age, and in all his objections, uh, and trying to get out of the task, he never used uh, uh, raised the age issue, and neither should we men and women. The Lord has been pleased to use aged men and women in the past, and he still does. It was said of John Wesley, he was preaching every day when he was 88. 
every day. So when you get into your 60s, 70s, or whatever you might think it is to be old, don't you think that God is finished with me? There's nothing I can do. Let the age of these representatives of God challenge us. And let, let it rebuke our any slothful spirit that might seek to raise its head where the work of God is concerned. Some of the, the fittest men, some of the men or ladies that are doing the greatest work are up in those years. But having looked at the representatives, I want you to notice also here the rod. There's implicit obedience on the part of Moses. The Lord knows the end from the beginning. He knew what he would meet with when he stood before Pharaoh. Indeed, he reveals it to Moses. Because the secret of the Lord, of course, is with them that fear him. Look at the words of verse 9. And Pharaoh shall speak unto you. This is the Lord telling Moses. Now this is what's going to happen, Moses. And Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, Show a miracle for you. Then I shall say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. There's a request that they will be faced with. The request from Pharaoh, in effect, was to show the proof of their authority, to show the proof of their calling. He would demand evidence that Moses and Aaron truly were who they said they were, that they represented the one whom they claimed to speak for. He needed to see proof they indeed were sent by Jehovah God. That's the essence of verse 9. And the Lord tells Moses before he goes before him, and when that request was made, the credentials were readily shown. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord had commanded. In other words, that request was made, right? You've got to show me that you belong to this Jehovah that you're talking about. And so we read, and Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. It involved the rod that was in Moses' hand. Men and women, before I go any further, here's the point. When one is truly sent of God, then the proof will be evident to others. The proof will be evident and it will be seen. If someone is called to preach the gospel, it will be evidenced. Let me say to any young person, the Bible college doesn't make you a preacher. It doesn't give you the call. A Bible college will take off the sharp edges and, uh, uh, and that's an ongoing work, of course. But the Bible college doesn't give you the gift of preaching. That ability and that calling will already be seen. The same applies to a teacher. You know, maybe some of the young people have an aspiration to be a teacher. Well, that ability, those gifts will be able to be seen before you even set yourself to that. Or some musical talent and so we could go on. Those things will be evidenced. And Moses was ready to answer this request. For the Lord had instructed him what to do. It's good to be ready with an answer of the hope that lies within you. And you'll only be ready when you spend time in his word. And people, others, will see it's evident that you're speaking for the Lord. That you're an ambassador of Christ. It'll be seen. The rod was to be cast down. It would be turned into a serpent. Only the power of God could do that. 
And it shows that without the power of God in any of our labors, then we can do nothing. We might have the best team behind us. We might have the best organization and plans and provisions and all the rest. But if it's devoid of God's power, then it will come to naught. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Remember that. And we are only able to see the power of God. I want you to think of this. Moses was only able to see the power of God because he, first of all, was obedient to what God commanded. You'll not see God's power if you're living in disobedience. You remember the disciples? Remember the, the time the Lord went into Jairus' uh, Jairus's house to raise the daughter? There were those there and they laughed him to scorn. What happened? The Lord put them out. You see, unbelief couldn't be in the place where the power of God would be demonstrated. And only the Savior and those small number of disciples saw that girl raised from the deathbed. We want to avoid at all costs being like Samson, who thought that he could get up from the lap of the harlot as at other times. He, but he wished not that the Lord had departed from him. His power had gone. The significance of the rod being turned into the serpent may have demonstrated to the conscience of Pharaoh that he and his people were under the dominion of Satan. Remember, Satan is firstly introduced to us in the Scriptures in the form of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. I mean, the interesting thing here is that there's nothing said here, either in what God commanded Moses in verse 9, or indeed when the miracle was performed before, before Pharaoh. There was nothing said. You see, the miracle itself spoke of itself. It was a message to Pharaoh's heart. You're under the dominion of, of Satan. But I think we must see the reaction, because you look at verse 11. And you'll notice how Pharaoh was unimpressed. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men the sorcerers. Now the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. He called for his wise men. He called for his sorcerers. Those who were in touch with the powers of evil in order that they might show themselves to be powerful. And the wording of verse 11 and particularly the first line of verse 12, where they cast down every man his rod and they became serpents, tells us that they were to do exactly the same. Now, we do not attempt to explain that away. There are commentators who do that. But I'm not in the business of explaining away what the Holy Ghost has written down. They did in like manner. It was they who cast down every man his rod, and that rod became serpents. And so therefore the question that arises in your heart or mine, how could they perform such a miracle? I tell you how, by the power of the devil. You see, the battle is against God and the devil, power, but the battle is against between good and evil. Moses is God's representative throughout. Pharaoh is the representative of Satan. And the fact is that these wise men, these sorcerers, had the power of the devil at their disposal. We should never underestimate the power of the great adversary. Oh, the little children's books may have him as somebody with a tail and horns and all the rest of it. That's not always the case, by the way. And we do not dismiss the devil because he's powerful He's a greater adversary than any one of us can face. 
And we should never forget this either, that one of the devil's tactics is to replicate or duplicate the power of God. He wants to make himself as like unto the Lord. Exalt himself. That's why he was cast out of heaven. He seeks to counterfeit the works of God and the word of God, of course. His power is in evidence here so as to deflect Pharaoh from believing in the Lord. It's something that is warned about throughout God's truth. I want to bring you to Paul again as he writes to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 this time. I said to you, the devil doesn't always appear with the horns and the tail. You look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. He says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. You see, there are the counterfeits. And he says, No marvel. Don't be alarmed at this. For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Doesn't always have the horns. He can transform himself into an angel of light. Therefore, verse 15, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. There's the power of the devil. He has counterfeit servants. He has counterfeit power. Tries to imitate the power of God. Can even transform himself. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians. You have in these words the appearance of the Antichrist. And Paul here speaks to these Thessalonians about this. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9. He says, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. There's the very words we're seeing in our own passage. The Lord said there would be signs and wonders. The devil's tactic is to try and replicate, duplicate the power of God. And that's how it will be even in that time. The devil is about the work of imitation. And the most subtle is in worship. There's worship out there that knows nothing of the power of God. It's the devil. That's why I seek to warn our young people against following the modern day signs and wonders. Matthew 24, verse 24 is very enlightening. It says this, speaking of the last days, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders. Inasmuch to the extent that if it were possible, not be, but if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect, the very people of God. There's the counterfeit of the devil. There's the duplication that will be in the last days. But men and women, there's one massive difference. And please underline it. The power of Satan is inferior to that of God. 
For what do we read in verse 12 of our passage? It says, For they cast down every man his rod, and they became servants. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. There's the difference. The devil is powerful, but he's not as powerful as Almighty God. For there is a removing of those other serpents as the rod of Moses, which had become a serpent, was to swallow them up. It's obvious that the power of the God of Moses was superior to that of the sorcerers or any of the false gods of Egypt. It was a declaration to Pharaoh that he must let the Israelites go. For the higher authority than he or his gods had proved himself to be greater. You want, I want you to try and just picture that scene. And Moses and Aaron there standing before Pharaoh. He puts, casts down the rod. It becomes a serpent. He brings in his wise men, his counselors and all the sorcerers. And that serpent of Aaron, it swallows the rest of them up. And so when Aaron reaches down to lift up that serpent and it returns to being a rod, there's no other rod in that room. They're all gone. The power of God is greater than that of the devil. The magicians are left undone. And men and women, when God so pleases, he can swallow up our enemies and he can leave them dumbfounded. Our God is still the one who opened up the earth and swallowed Korah and his people in their rebellion. It is the God who has promised to us his people through redemption in Christ. Death is swallowed up in victory. O grave, where is thy sting? That's the same God. Let me ask you, is he your God? Is he your heavenly Father this morning? Let me just... In closing, bring to you the rejection. For verse 13 essentially shows us the rejection of the power of God by Pharaoh that had been displayed. He hearkened not unto them. Oh, he had opportunity to believe in the God of Moses and Aaron. If he seen only the sorcerers cause their rods to become like serpents, then he would have no reason to listen to these men. He'd have no reason to grant their request to let them go. But remember, he had seen more than that. He had seen Aaron's serpent, Aaron's rod, swallow up those other serpents. But Pharaoh had enough to stay in his unbelief and in his hardness. A practice of rejecting the obvious and clinging to that which is not obvious reveals a rebellious heart. And you know, sometimes it is the same with the unsaved. They will not accept the plain gospel text. They'll look for other, some other twisted interpretation to stay in their unbelief. And they say, I will not have this man to rule over me. You see, the problem, men and women, is the heart. And Proverbs 21 and 1 brings it to us. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. And the Lord said, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. That heart was hardened so that it wouldn't receive the most obvious of miracles and of revelations. And today, people, the problem is exactly the same. It's the heart. 
That's why brutal crime is committed. That's why murders occur. That's why abortions and all the immorality of the day takes place. It's because of the heart. That's why divorces happen. Because the Savior taught that. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 8 says this. He said unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, accept, accept it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. It was the hardness of their hearts that they put away their wives. And the only one who can remedy the problem of the heart is the Lord, for in salvation God says to us, a new heart will I give you, a new spirit will I put within you. This rejection by Pharaoh, you know, is something prophesied. Look at verse 13 just in closing. He hardened Pharaoh's heart that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. As the Lord had said. God had already told it unto Moses. He's not going to let you go. I'm going to harden his heart. And now this prediction is proven to be true. It underlines to us the veracity. That's a big word, but it simply means the truth of God's word. And while it is discouraging for us that Pharaoh rejected the message, it is encouraging to us because it proves his reaction was exactly what God had said it would be. And so it is today. And so it shall be in the days to come. I've already referenced the final Antichrist in Second Thessalonians. I want to read just Revelation chapter 17, verse 17. Again, it has to do with the final days. It says, For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give unto their kingdom, unto the beast, un- until the words of God shall be fulfilled. The two kings are in league with the final Antichrist, the man of sin. But you'll notice something. It's God that causes them to give their kingdom unto him. God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will, to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast. His plan and purpose will be fulfilled. For he maketh even his enemies a praise him. Until the words of God shall be fulfilled. It's all coming to pass. The words of God will be fulfilled, men and women. Heaven and earth will pass away. God says, my word will never pass away. And his word is, you must be born again if you're not saved. Your soul, take away this morning as we've looked something of the battle between good and evil. Take away this thought, God is on his throne. And all the wickedness of man will never dethrone him. It will simply confirm his word and his greatness. And so it is pointless in trying to fight against God, for you will never win the battle. And Pharaoh is an example of that. He tried. 
He hardened his heart. He wouldn't hearken unto them. But he wouldn't win. And dear soul, I say to you today, bow the knee in submission to him. And be saved. Be in the king's army. Get on to the right side. Get on to the victory side. Come to him even this morning. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts for his own name's sake.